happened. Matthew seven fifteen through 20. As you're making your way there, I'll pause and pray. Our Father God, rich in grace and mercy, benevolent in your kindness to even all men, we thank you for allowing us this morning, uh, Lord, for uh, ordaining it for the good of your people. So we just hope, expect that you would uh, feed us good things from your word, nor that you'd instruct us that you would Equip us to be aware of what seeks to come against your church. And Lord, that we be confident in your promise to build your church and not let anything come against it. So help us understand these words of yours and to live by them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, last week we prefaced what uh, we're getting ready to talk about in Matthew 7, 15 through 20, by looking in Colossians 1 and reminding ourselves again of the gospel, its cause and its effects, so that when we are abundantly and extremely clear on the gospel, ever meditating in the good news of our Savior and the reconciliation that He won for us with the Father, we can be aware of counterfeits that come in to the church and try and distort or pervert that message in order to lead people astray. And that's what Jesus is going to warn us about here at the end of this sermon. And so we are told by Him that false prophets not only exist, but that they will always exist. And every New Testament writer deals or makes mention or gives warning about false prophets, about false teaching, about those which come in and try and proclaim some other sort of teaching. And so they, their best efforts are utilized in making the gospel clear, which will make error clear. And error is serious because what Jesus already told us uh, right before this is that we must enter through the narrow gate. Right? And the, and the gate is wide and easy that leads to destruction. In other words, you'll be tempted to take that way. So you need to be clear on what the narrow way is. And especially since the narrow way is hard. And you may be tempted to think that maybe that's not the way. Because any sort of discomfort or problems that arise on the narrow way might signal human flesh to say, well, this is uncomfortable, so maybe this isn't the way to go. But being clear on the gospel and what Jesus says will keep you there on the narrow way. And we gave that illustration from Pilgrim's Progress, right? How Christian will encounter the slew of despond and and all these other, the lions, and, and all these things along the path, but he has been told what the path is and what it's like and what is at the end of it, and so he remains on the path, but, but pliable and obstinate, 
begin to see what he's doing by following the path and then quickly divert once they see trouble. So we have to understand and maintain clarity and focus on the gospel because it's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of life and destruction. And if we are called as God's people to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ, that means that we have a message that we carry and proclaim and live. That points to that narrow way. We are called to be those lights with His light living within us, which is our life that alerts people or advertises people to the way that they should go. And we even looked at how your suffering and being sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as Paul describes Christians, is one of those ways that you proclaim that you are following the way because your hope is not here. Your hope is in what is to come. And so you deal with the slings and arrows of life as those temporary sufferings that Paul says are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. But one of the things that is not only prevalent today, but it's always been prevalent, always plagued the church, is false prophets or false teachings or liars or deceivers or false brothers. There's lots of terms that the New Testament uses to describe these things that are happening. And all of this, all these false prophets and all of this is, is kind of let loose under the rule and reign of Satan here in this world to blind the minds of unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what we're told in 2 Corinthians 4.4. And so the best way that he's going to do that is by trying to just twist the teaching just a little, right, like he did in the garden, to get everybody's attention and focus somewhere other than the actual glory of Christ in the gospel. You know, I often tell people, like, there's, there are people attracted to, like, evil and horror and, and perverse things. Like, that does attract some people, um, but not a lot in the grand scheme of things. So, I don't, I don't think Satan um, minds those things, those tactics, but I don't think that's where all his effort is really focused. I mean, we're told, as we'll read later on, that he disguises himself as an angel of light that he wants to just put that little twist on God's word to make people think that they are in, although they're out. And so they are following him right to that lake of fire. So you have to be aware of that. You have to be aware that when we begin to talk about false prophets today, understand that term, that they are appearing as those who speak and share the oracles of God. And so you have to delineate between false and true. And so hopefully we're going to be equipped with some tools to do that today. But number one, I, I can't fully equip you today with all the tools you need to, to uh, suss out false teaching. That's kind of what I'm spending my life doing here. And, and your reading and studying of the Bible will make you 
so familiar with the gospel of your beloved Savior that you yourself can be equipped uh, to see, handle false teaching, false prophets. Now, we're not talking about a, a disagreement on, on little things, how you view church membership or, or maybe even church government. No, no, we're talking about um, distorting what it means for people to be saved and to be sanctified or made holy. We're talking about what it means to have an eternal hope in Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God, who by His death and burial and resurrection has paid for our sin, conquered it, and promised us uh, the same eternal reality that he holds. We're, we're talking about those subtleties in teaching that overlook some of the crucial doctrines of the gospel and the truth that we read in Colossians 1 that make people those that will say in verse 22 of Matthew 7. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then Jesus will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. False prophets will be those who get in the way of what it means for people to actually know Jesus. And in Jesus' day, you could say those were most of the Pharisees and Sadducees that were even distorting the law of God to keep people from knowing God. And you can read throughout the Old Testament in books like Lamentations and Zechariah how God feels about those who uh, are supposed to teach his people and don't make the truth known and clear and plain to them. He has a special kind of wrath stored up for those. So it's a really big warning in James that not many of you should be teachers. And yet somehow that called me to be a teacher here. So we look now at Matthew 7:15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. There's a lot to unpack there, but you have to first notice, right, that these are those that look like they're going to share with you the Word of God. They're going to tell. They're going to, they're going to forth tell. They're going to bring forth the Word of God supposedly to you. And... They wear sheep's clothing. You know who wears sheep's clothing? Shepherds wear sheep's clothing. The sheep provide for them what they wear as they do their work. And so they will look like shepherds. By all outward appearances, many would say they are shepherds. But they are inwardly ravenous wolves. Paul describes this to Timothy in giving him instruction about these sort of things. 
In 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9, he tells Timothy to understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Jonas and Jambres, in Esther biblical tradition, are the names of those Egyptian magicians who uh, kind of mimicked the acts that Moses did before Pharaoh. Okay? But they were found to be false. It looked real. It looked like they had the appearance of the same power of God that Moses did. But in the end, what did we find? that they served the evil one, that they were these that Paul describes in verses 2, 3, and 4 of 2 Timothy, and that we are warned by him there that these times are upon us as they were upon Timothy, and that not only will people be characterized by this way, but there will be people that come in to teach and rob and kill and destroy that appear to have the power of God, but actually oppose the truth. It's coming. Didn't Jesus warn us of this in Matthew 24, 24, which we'll get to sometime in the future? For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. That things will happen that will cause God's people to even pause and scratch their heads and be curious of how that could be possible if they weren't of God. Scares you, doesn't it? Makes you think that you might not even be able to distinguish error if they could possibly lead away even the elect. But I hope by the end of this you'll have some hope and some confidence that God will provide the wisdom and the knowledge we need and he so much promised earlier in this chapter. C.H. Spurgeon puts it this way, A man is what he is inwardly. They come as prophets, they come with every outward commendation, but they are very Balaam's and will surely curse those they pretend to bless. I read that phrase there that they come with every outward commendation, and I get so annoyed and mystified when a pastor search committee is formed and they begin by looking at resumes. Do you understand false prophets exist today uh, with, with extensive and padded resumes? And they know that the church will accept them for some of those great um, things they have listed there whether it be in the references, whether it be in the education, 
whether it be in the positions that they've held within denominational life or within other churches. And they know that the church today loves those things. And that's how they get in. So, if I ever talk to people that are working on a pastor's search, I say you start with word of mouth. You have to go find somebody that is commended as having that humble, Christ-like dependence upon them. Forget the resume. You want people that can be described as, as Peter and John and Acts 4 as those who have been with Jesus. He says in Matthew 7, 15, that they are inwardly ravenous wolves. That Greek word for ravenous means excessively greedy, conniving, thieving. And also pay attention to the fact that wolves are pack hunters. Which in this context would mean that they work with and for the evil one. That they are liars, Jesus says, and their father is the father of lies. They do what he does. It's, it's all one unified effort under his leadership. 2 Corinthians eleven twelve through 15 And what I am doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false prophets, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Sorry, you might not get to see these other slides. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So Paul's telling us this is what Satan does. He disguised himself as an angel of light and his servants would do likewise. So don't be surprised that they show up in the church, that they hang out with Christians, that they say Christian things, that they do Christian things. But Jesus knows them perfectly, and we're told here in just a minute that we'll recognize them by their fruits, but that their end, their end will correspond to what they actually did and why they did it. Which brings us to our next section here in verses 16 through 20. Jesus says, you'll recognize them by their fruits. And then he gives examples. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So, we'll distinguish what fruit is in a minute, but that's how we will, I think, both know them now, verse 16, 
That's how they will be known on the last day, verse 20. Jude puts it this way, verses 11 through 13. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast. In other words, they're, they are hidden under the water, but when the ship passes over them, they cause destruction. As they feast without, with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, Swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild ways of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Don't you love how Jude just puts all these examples and, and metaphors and word pictures together and describes uh, what, it, what, what false teachers look like or, or what their ends are, or what their efforts are? actually produce i especially like how he says they're hidden reefs at your love's love feast you're coasting along everything's smooth sailing you're with them but all of a sudden destruction comes and tears out the bottom of the ship and everything goes down that's how they work they lull you into sleep by making you believe that who you're listening to are actually those prophets of god and then, just when they have you fully confident, then they just rip or take the bottom out from under you. And under destruction is left in their wake. So, one way you need to distinguish um, whether you're listening to a false prophet, even now, is does their ministry have any effect on the holiness of the people that they minister to? Does it have any effect on the prayerfulness of the people? Does it have any effect on the worship of God? Or is it simply a, a human kingdom building exercise for themselves? In other words, are they doing this so that they grow in fame and fortune and power? Test them. What are they about? And we spent time in Colossians 1, and we've spent time in Colossians 1 and 3, and throughout the whole letter, to distinguish what the purpose of those ministers of God is. It's to present you mature in Christ, so that He is glorified by His gospel taking effect in the lives of His people. If it is about, in any way, the person doing that work, you have a pretty good indication that that might be a false prophet. You know, we lived in Branson for a couple of years, and it was almost funny but sad to drive by some of these churches that had marquees outside and would have the pastor and his wife plastered on this marquee. Like, this is about us. Come in and see what we're going to do. See what we're going to say. See how we're going to perform. And it just gives that vibe, if you'll say, of arrogant, prideful, self-boasting, false prophet type ministry. It is utterly and only about him. 
And it's about you seeing him, which is what we're about here, right? Seeing you see him. Not about you seeing you see me. So we test them. Are you growing in holiness by what you've heard? You know, I often tell the story of, of those two Americans that visited uh, London in, in the 19th century when Spurgeon was preaching, and they went to a church in the morning, and they heard the music, and they heard the preaching, and they, they, they left speaking about you know, how good the music was and how eloquent the preacher was and all that sort of thing. And then they went to Spurgeon's church in the evening. And they walked away talking about how glorious Christ is, how magnificent the gospel is, how, how amazing and unsearchable are the wisdom uh, of God. And then they quickly realized the fruit of each of those ministries. One of them was promoting self. The other was promoting Jesus and the gospel. And that's what they got from it. That's what we're supposed to get from this. Not only today, but every day that ministry is carried out here. 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, and I would add, they remain in the world. And they will be here until that great day of the Lord. That's a promise that we have. They just are going to exist. So we need to know what is fruit. Well, we already spoke about their uh, ministry. Uh, a, a fruitful ministry must have the effect on the holiness of the people. But also, I would simply remind you again about Galatians 5, through 23, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things, there is no law. These things don't promote self. They promote Jesus, who is the perfect personification of these things. And His Spirit, living in the hearts of His people, produces these things. Another thing false prophets do is they replace Jesus Christ as the head, of the head of the church. They desire fame, money, power, and even sex. They, they, are, they are working for their own flesh to get the things that their flesh desires. Not what Jesus desires. Jesus desires a bride that is pure, blameless, spotless, prepared for him on the final day. False prophets desire things they can get now. How much can I get out of these people now? John MacArthur says, False prophets are as dangerous to God's people as ravenous wolves are to sheep. That's why Jesus uses the example. He's not being overly dramatic. He's being real. Ravenous wolves will pick off any sheep that they can and rip it to pieces to satisfy their flesh. The same with false prophets. They'll do the very same thing and will cause the very same kind of destruction, death. This is why this is so serious. This is why 
Who you listen to throughout the week and who you listen to on Sunday are extremely important to me. John MacArthur also calls the right heart, the right attitude of a good shepherd, a beatitude attitude of humility. A beatitude attitude of humility. That's how we started this sermon, right, in Matthew 5? Those characteristics of what a kingdom person looks like? That's a good way to distinguish between a false prophet and a real prophet of God. Well, how's Jesus say it? John 7, 18, The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Obviously, that is perfectly speaking about Jesus himself, but also would characterize those under-shepherds of his too. I don't speak of my own ability or with my own knowledge or with my own authority. If I did, you'd be severely disappointed. You know, one thing that we have in our day that is mostly a bad thing but can help us, uh, social media. Social media is a great identifier of false prophets in our day. I mean, you can see them coming a mile away. If they've got a social media profile, what do you see? You see pictures of them doing ministry. You see uh, them writing and, and, and describing to you what they're doing that day for the kingdom of God. So they are, they are uncovering themselves with their social media. It's, it's crazy. They'll, they'll put it right there. Are we going to recognize it? Or are we just going to say, oh, they're just more, you know, outgoing? No. Be careful with them. Be aware of them. Probably steer clear of them. Another thing they do is they make Bible studies inwardly focused. God is not the main subject. That's pretty self-explanatory. You know, even when we do a study um, that we did in Sunday school one time, um, gentle and lowly, we're, 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 just, we're talking about what it means um, to be a child of God, but it's about how he describes himself as gentle and lowly in heart. It's about how he presses into the sinner. It's about how he gets glory for his loving kindness and patience towards those who constantly stumble but that he is saving so it's about him it, it is we are his people he, he is uh sanctifying us he is making us more like christ each and every day uh, there are promises to us that are eternal but who gets the glory when you read revelation it's him we we have nothing to do with that we are there because of him. We are glorified because of Him. And so rightly, you see those scenes in Revelation, and they are we are singing His praises day and night because it's about Him. He's always the main subject. Even if we're talking about our anxiety or our fear or whatever, we have to have Him as the main subject because He's the only solution. He is the reason why Jesus tells us back in 
Matthew 6, not to worry. It always goes back to him. It should never go back to us. The only thing we contribute to this world is our sin and degradation. It, it, it's, it's why that I think we always have to say uh, we take credit. We take no credit for every good thing we do. Because I don't know about you, but I wouldn't do them if it weren't for him. I know what I would do. I used to live that way. But then his power came to live within me by his spirit, giving me a new heart. And he abides with me as I abide with him. And then something happens, right? Jesus says you can do no good apart from me. Period. God has to be the main subject or we're off base. Another thing they do is they constantly stir division. And Paul says he believes this about the Corinthians having division in their midst uh, because it's kind of by design. Look at this. 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen through 19. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are division, divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So you're always going to have this contrast like John likes to talk about with darkness and light. You put a, a false prophet up, a, up against a real one, and there's a contrast. There are some things that distinguish their lives from one another. And, and God leaves that contrast for a time so that we can see. So that we can see what the light looks like like next to the darkness, what the darkness looks like next to the light. Otherwise, it'd be all dark. and We wouldn't know. So there is divisions among us, and it's stirred by these false prophets. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 34 through 35, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So we can hear them when they talk. And the subtlety of a false prophet who's a wolf in sheep's clothing is it's not so much about what they say sometimes, it's about what they don't say. It's about the things they skip about the things they ignore in the scriptures it's about the glory of god that is to be revealed that they hide away so it calls us to know our bibles so that we know when they are purposely skipping something that brings much glory to god they will call you to the broad or wide way. They will try and tell you that some things are acceptable and that that guilt can be removed because of how they preach the um, inclusivity of the gospel when the gospel is exclusive. There is one way, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There is a narrow way through one gate. 
And Jesus is the gate. And his word lights the way. But they will say that he has said things that he didn't say. They'll say things are okay when he says they're not okay. They'll say things lead to life when he says they don't lead to life. They are calling you to the broad way. So then what are they good for? Well, Jesus says um, that they're to be cut down for firewood. Right? There's no, that, there's no other fruit bearing that happens from them. They must be used for fire. You know, when I was um, a child and we used to cut wood, my dad was big about only cutting dead trees, right? I mean, it's probably a lot more dry, obviously. But also, what else is it good for at that point? When it's lying on the ground and not bearing fruit, what else are you going to do with it? Now, what's the fire he's speaking of? We'll look at that in a second. But he said earlier in Matthew 3.10, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What's the fire? Revelation 20.15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You go a few verses before that in Revelation 20, and you find that that lake of fire is is prepared for the devil and his angels and those who would deceive along with him. And even death and Hades are thrown into it, but it's created for the day and night, constant eternal torment of the devil and his angels and any of those that would follow. So I have to believe that the lake of fire is not a, a place where you're just destroyed. It's a place that is an unquenchable wrath of God that pours over you day and night forever. We can't comprehend the terrible horror of what that is. Just like I don't think it's possible for us yet to comprehend the unimaginable glory of heaven. It is the constant presence of God's wrath that will torment evil forever. So anyone's name not written in the book of life and Satan and his angels, it's for them. Those trees that don't bear good fruit, the diseased trees, the bad fruit trees, that's where they go for firewood. John 15, 2. This is a very important chapter, right? Because Jesus is speaking to us about what it means to abide in him. And he says in verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So on a positive note, we do read in verse 17 and 18 that a healthy tree will bear good fruit. It won't bear bad fruit. And things may happen in your life, the suffering or the sorrow, whatever, and that's not uh, God cutting you off to throw you in the fire, that is Him pruning you to bear more fruit. The, Jesus learned and grew by what He suffered. Why wouldn't it be the same for His people? So don't be mistaken by the work of God in your life. Remember the blind man in John 9? 
Who sinned, him or his parents? Why is he blind? Jesus says, it's not about that. It's about the glory of God being revealed in his life, being manifested in his life, being communicated through what he suffered. So, positively, healthy trees guaranteed to bear fruit as those who abide in the life-giving vine. As Jesus has called you to himself, so there you live, and hopefully so there you abide, and there by fruit comes. It's just inevitable. It's not to make you passive. It is to say, as Jesus says in John 15, as you abide in me. That relationship is constant and ongoing because Jesus promises at the end of Matthew to never leave or forsake us. To put his spirit within us, therefore his very presence is with us. Are we going to acknowledge that every day? In, in a faith-filled prayer and reading of his word that he would speak and that he would hear because he is with us? That's abiding in him. And watch what happens. Watch what happens when you abide in him. He will make himself known not only to you, but to others through you by that way. Now, when you connect the following verses, 21 through 23, especially to verse 20, you have an indication that we will not always be able to recognize them, the false prophets, before Jesus comes and brings everything to its conclusion. When Jesus comes to do that, he will reveal through his testing fire of judgment the fruit of their ways and their identity as those who never knew him or those who were never his. And there will be an unmistakable recognition of their fruit at that point in time because Jesus is going to say, I don't know you. You did this and you did this, you say, but I don't know you. That's terrifying. But it's connected, I believe, to how false prophets operate and how they themselves may be deceived. To think that they are prophesying the word of God. But they've um, never been those who have placed themselves under the searching eye of God to test their hearts and to find any impure way within them. They continue on without a beatitude, attitude of humility, taking it on themselves to proclaim the word of God instead of depending on God to proclaim the word of God. So in conclusion, my instruction to you would be this in light of what we've heard today. Uh, number one, know Jesus, like K-N-O-W, like know him, get to know him, uh, read about him, hear about him from people that know him, watch him in their lives, watch him in his life in the Gospels, get familiar with who Jesus is every day. I don't care if you're a seasoned Christian or a new one, you must seek him and to know him every day, therefore know his Gospel. Understand his mission from the beginning. What he 
promised to do, what he did, and what he still promises to complete in light of that. Become so familiar with the gospel that it is second nature to you to explain it in any context that you find yourself, which would require you, number three, to know his word. We are promised in Jeremiah 31 of a new covenant in which God becomes our teacher by the Holy Spirit. He puts his law in our heart and he teaches us what he said. So have confidence in reading your Bible prayerfully and faithfully that God will show you and teach you and speak to you. And he'll bring you those that he's raised up to aid you in that. So my job becomes to help you read your Bible better. And by those three things, knowing Jesus, knowing the gospel, knowing his word, you will know false prophets when they arise to lead people to the wide way. You, you, you won't be led astray by them because you're following Jesus. And when something um, strays from that path that you're so familiar with, you won't go. You'll stay. Because you know him and you know where he's leading and how he's leading. So you won't be deceived. And also, by the way, you have a promise of God to finish the work that he started in you at the day of Christ Jesus. And that nobody can snatch out of his hand those that are his. But don't act like these things don't exist. And don't act like they're always easy to spot. Just be aware. But rest assured, if you spend time with him in his word, you will be okay. I promise you. Respond to him now and then we'll stand and sing together.